do we see at Groundswell this year, the 26th and 27th of June, close to London, UK? Many friends of the podcast will be there. John Kempf, Abby Rose, Benedict Bozo, Henry Dimbleby, Claire Hill, Russ Carrington, Andy Cato, Tim Coates, and many, many more. See you there. You won't be listening to a typical episode of this podcast. We'll take a deep dive into greenhouses for the production of vegetables. Why? Because the middle class in Asia, Eastern Europe and the Middle East is booming and they're going to their local supermarket and they're demanding fresh and healthy vegetables, which are now trucked or flown in from thousands of kilometers away. So get ready for a lesson on soilless, high-tech greenhouse production, CO2, freshness and urbanization. Enjoy! Welcome to another episode of Investing in Regenerative Agriculture, Investing as if the Planet Mattered podcast show where I talk to the pioneers in the regenerative food and agriculture space to learn more on how to put our money to work to regenerate soil, people, local communities and ecosystems while making an appropriate and fair return. Why my focus on soil and regeneration? Because so many of the pressing issues we face today have their roots in how we treat our land, grow our food and what we eat. And it's time that we as investors, big and small and consumers, start paying much more attention to the dirt slash soil underneath our feet. Before we get started, I've been recording these interviews next to my day job and I will definitely continue to do so and release about an episode a month. But at the same time, I would love to take this further, share more interviews. There are many more stories to share on investing in regenerative food and agriculture, more depth, improve the quality, maybe even doing some video series. So I started a Patreon community, which makes it easy to support creators like myself. If these podcasts have been of value to you, and if you have the means, I invite you to support me and make this happen. For more information, please find the link to my Patreon account in the description below. And now, without further ado, the interview. Enjoy! Welcome to Investing in Regenerative Agriculture, Investing as if the Planet Mattered. I'm Koen van your host. Today I'm talking to Dirk Aleven, CEO of Food Ventures. Food Ventures develops and operates high-tech greenhouses close to markets and cities with large vegetable imports like Kazakhstan, Turkey, Japan, Georgia and Ukraine. Regenerative agriculture in this case is mostly focused on the regeneration of local communities, bringing productions, production and jobs closer to the consumer and not so much on the soil aspects. But we're going to ask Dirk all about this. Welcome, Dirk. Thank you. Thank you, Kun, for hosting me. And to start with a personal question, how did you end up in the world of building high-tech, sustainable greenhouses in places like Ukraine, Japan, Georgia? <laughs> well, that's a good question indeed. Um, you must be wondering yourself. You must be wondering about that yourself every now and then. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not educated in agriculture. Um, my first company, uh, uh, which I started in, back in uh, 2004, that was a meet-in. We were organizing uh, all kind of business trips for. Dutch entrepreneurs to uh, emerging markets. So we were traveling with groups of, uh, of entrepreneurs to China, to uh, Brazil, India, Eastern Europe, all, uh, all kind of places. Um, and one of the things I noticed was that um, almost in every like, big city in emerging markets we were entering, uh, the, the international retail was already active and they were complaining about the supply of fresh vegetables. So basically, they could get all the supplies they needed, but but the issue of fresh vegetables was uh, pretty big. Um, so um, I noticed that the, the the Dutch are one of the best uh, worldwide in uh, producing fresh vegetables, distribution of, veg- of fresh vegetables. The whole uh, the whole chain is one of the most professional organized um, uh, industries um, around the globe. 
So um, we started looking into that and first idea was to uh, see if we could support the industry to export their technologies to um, new markets. Um, but that was already uh, done. We, we saw uh, pretty high-tech greenhouses built uh, everywhere around the globe. In fact, 90% of the uh, Dutch uh, or 90% of the greenhouses worldwide outside of Europe are supplied by, uh, by Dutch um, uh, technology providers. But the real issue was that nobody knew how to use these uh, new technologies. So we, uh, we visited several uh, greenhouses um, in Eastern Europe, uh, which were underperforming. Uh, yields were, well, 30, 40% less than, than expected. And, and then... Which is a problem in, in, because these are huge, huge investments per hectare. We're going to dive into some numbers later. But if you're underperforming here, it, it, it really is a problem as a, as a unit because they're high tech and require a lot of cash to, to start, a lot of capital. And then you don't want to be 30, 40% under your, your targets, I guess. Absolutely. It's absolutely an, uh, a, a huge issue. The, the, um, the issue would be even bigger if it was in the Netherlands. Then, then for sure, they were, would face uh, financial uh, crises uh, followed by bankruptcies. The fact that they didn't in, in those markets was uh, simply because the prices for the goods sold was pretty high. Um, so um, so the, the low yields were compensated by extremely high prices. And that was explained by the fact that these markets are net importers. So they were they were importing. Well, Russia, for, as, as a good example, is importing uh, tomatoes from uh, from as far as Israel, Spain, uh, the Netherlands, uh, shipping them for like three, four thousand kilometers um, by refrigerated uh, trucks, uh, bringing them to the consumers. So you you can you can. You can understand that these the prices for the fresh vegetables are extremely high. Another example is Asia, whereas Malaysia is importing by air freight Dutch truss tomatoes. So the export price uh, of the Dutch tomato is roughly 80 cents, where it ends up at $4 per kilo um, uh, in Malaysia. So just to get it right, they're flying in Dutch tomatoes from greenhouses here in the Netherlands because they're, there's not the, the level of sun you... You might expect to Malaysia to supply supermarkets there. Well, everything is there uh, in Malaysia, and everything is flown in. Wow. Like technically, you could absolutely produce in Malaysia, but nobody does it today, so they are they're forced to import it. Uh, same same goes for Singapore. Um, well, maybe perhaps you've seen the the news that the Dutch growers are extremely proud on the fact that they can supply bell peppers from the Netherlands to China air freight. So it's it's ridiculous. So we're we're basically we're. Let's not even start about food kilometers there. So this is this was so this was the the, um, the reason that we got interested in this industry, and we've we've noticed um, uh, the, the the huge lack of um, know how on how to grow in uh, in high tech greenhouses. So we decided to do it ourselves. Um, I I had no know how in in, in growing either, uh, but I was um, lucky enough to involve Dutch growers in into my business. So we locked in um, uh, some uh, really experienced uh, Dutch growers who already had experience in growing uh, outside the Netherlands as well, in Mexico and in uh, Russia and uh, among among other countries in the, uh, around the world. And we started our first project in uh, in Ukraine, building a greenhouse to um, produce salad, which we are supplying to the local supermarkets in uh, in Ukraine. So th- that that answers your your question a bit on on how I ended up. Um, uh, building greenhouses in uh, in Eastern Europe uh, by by accident uh, and and 
by seeing the need that uh, we we didn't only want to export technology, we wanted to invest ourselves, commit ourselves and uh, transfer the know-how to use the technologies. Because otherwise it would be one of those many cases where something very high-tech is shipped from, in this case, a very high-tech country. It arrives, maybe it works for a bit and then either it falls apart or starts, like you said, underperforming, which we've seen a thousand times in history and probably will see a thousand times in the future as well with something high tech coming somewhere where where there is no let's say good ground for something high tech i mean unless you're operating it yourself yeah in other industries you do see um, uh, better examples where where technology and and know-how go hand in hand and um, operators are more uh, professionally organized and and connect themselves with the technology providers for instance in the oil industry uh, who, who would even consider uh, buying high-tech equipments without an operator involved. I mean, that, that's that's absolutely nonsense. So so how come is it, it it's not like that in, in the high-tech greenhouse industry? I, I guess because the industry in the Netherlands is developed over generations as a, as a mom and dad business. So it's, it's mainly uh, family-owned businesses, uh, rather la- uh, like smaller scale. Now, now we're entering a phase where, where uh, there's more consolidation and, and the companies are getting bigger, but... So far, uh, it has been like, literally thousands of growers in the Netherlands organized um, through corporations. So not having the right skill nor the interest um, to go abroad. So the operators themselves, they love the Netherlands, which I do as well, um, but they feel comfortable here and, and they have the whole industry organized in the Netherlands. Uh, and um, they, they have no interest in, in going abroad. Investing in, in Ukraine or Kazakhstan or whatever, uh, it, it requires a different skill set than, than just being a grower um, uh, or just being the best grower. And, and to look at Ukraine as an example, can you explain why, first of all, why the shift to supermarkets and thus also more off-season vegetables and why you cannot just grow them on a, outside on a non-high-tech, uh, in, not inside a high-tech greenhouse? Why is it such an interesting country and such an interesting example for, for your approach? Do you want to learn how to invest or are you an entrepreneur and want to build companies in the regenerative food and agriculture space? Or do you work in big ag and big food and want to really move the needle? We have developed a new video course for you. Find out more on investinginregenerativeagriculture.com slash course or in the show notes description below. So, so I, I guess um, what happened so far is that in, in Ukraine people had the time to grow some of their vegetables in their backyards. And uh, now more and more um, families are depending on two incomes. Um, they're living inside the cities. So there's a huge urbanization like everywhere in the, uh, in, in the globe. So they don't have the time to go outside the city, go to their dachas, their, uh, their family gardens to, to grow vegetables. So they start buying the vegetables in, um, in the supermarkets. And once they are in the supermarkets, they expect... First of all, a fresh vegetable. Uh, they expect it to be available whenever they uh, whenever they go to the supermarket, uh, n- not depending on the season, um, and they expect it to be safe because they they, they think and expect that um, the procurement department of a supermarket um, is paying attention to quality and food safety. So that's that's the consumer end of the uh, uh, part of the of the of the case. The in, in terms of supply, uh, there's still a lot of smallholders which do not make that transition from the 
like traditional seasonal production to uh, more extended um, uh, production so throughout the year so there's a gap between between like the the more professional and and modern consumers and uh, uh, the old-fashioned way of of producing tomatoes and cucumbers now it looks uh, for some of them it looks like 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 it, it has a sort of an uh, nice sound of having outside grown vegetables uh, in, on, on a smaller scale. The reality is that, that those suppliers, they use a lot of chemicals because they have a, a huge um, influence of, of, of weather and insects uh, outside. Uh, and there's absolutely no traceability. So in fact, th there can be good supplies, of course, if you know them. Um, but there is also a big group who wants to have a decent yield um, uh, out of open field production, uh, but they have a huge pressure of, uh, of insects and, uh, um, and, and all kinds of diseases, which they fight with uh, um, a high doses of chemicals. So we think that there's a better alternative if you do it in a um, protected environment, a controlled environment, and have the right skill to prove your uh, traceability of the products and the safety of your products. And, and that means in this case, close to the consumer or close, relatively close to, to the big urban areas, you are building or you have built in this case, uh, high-tech greenhouses and are operating them as well. Absolutely. Yeah. If you compare that with other, other industries like, like bakeries or, so, uh, or something, I mean, um, uh, you, you, you would be surprised if the supermarkets buy their, buy their breads from uh, uh, thousands of households uh, who, are, who are baking the breads uh, somewhere in the backyard. Uh, but that's that's in fact what's now happening in Ukraine with with vegetables. So so we think it's more logical that you have a more organized and larger scale uh, production of uh, of vegetables close to those markets who are depending on uh, on imports right now. And and when you look at I mean the, the moment somebody says greenhouses, everybody immediately thinks or not everyone. M many people will think energy use, sustainability. I mean you already highlighted a bit on on herbicides and pesticides. Can you talk a bit about the energy use and sustainability in, in general as obviously the sector in the Netherlands have, has been moving away from heavy gas and, and heavy energy use? I mean, what, what are the, the things you've seen and the things you have um, put to work in, in this case in Ukraine and in other countries? So I, I totally agree that, that, that a few decades ago uh, nobody was caring about uh, energy inputs in the Netherlands. And that's, that's the reason why some people have um, uh, bad memories or, or a bad impression on the, on the industry itself. Like today, um, everybody is, well, uh, from a sustainability angle and from a financial angle, uh, looking for alternatives on, uh, on energy because... Um, uh, the energy use in the in the end makes like around one third of the cost price of your uh, of your product. Plus, consumers start asking, uh, how do you produce your your goods and, and what is your your source of energy? Uh, in Georgia, we we are using um, uh, geothermal energy. So, uh, in in fact, we're we're almost not using gas at all. And the gas that we use, um, we use the um, carbon dioxide coming from it. Uh, as a fertilizer for the plants, so we're we're uh, CO2 neutral. Um, in in Ukraine, we use uh, biomass as an alternative energy um, uh, for two reasons. Uh, first one um, uh, to be more sustainable in our heating, of course. But second one is that the gas is uh, expensive in Ukraine, so we also want to have alternatives. And again, the gas that we use is purely from uh, uh, the need of CO2, so we're we're almost CO2 uh, neutral there as well. Um, 
Uh, and in Kazakhstan, we're using cogeneration. Uh, so by cogeneration, we're, we're using flare gas. That's gas which normally is, is burned, simply burned uh, after the oil production, so not used at all. These are the big flames you see on top of pipes yeah. uh, if you live yeah. or if you happen to live close to oil production or refineries. Exactly, exactly. And we're using that gas and, and generating uh, electricity from it and, uh, and the remain heat uh, which is coming from this electricity heating, uh, electricity generation we're using for heating the greenhouse. So it's, it's, if I look at the industry today, it's in the genes of every grower uh, to think about energy saving. Uh, and, uh, and the suppliers, um, like, like if, you, if, you use, if you look at the uh, energy consumption today, it's almost like 60% less than, than 20 years ago. And that's, that's one of the reasons why the old greenhouses are now disappearing in Ukraine. They, uh, they were still used to very cheap gas in the Soviet Union, uh, so uh, their, their gas consumption was extremely high. And they're super leaky, basically. Yeah, <laughs> yeah super leaky, and, and, the, and they didn't have any, any strategies on how to use energy. So um, today, uh, the know-how is, is developed as such in the, in the Netherlands that the growers, uh, they know when heating is absolutely required, when it's sort of less comfortable and when it's not needed. So, so they, they, they look at the absolute need and say, well, well in these periods of the, uh, the day, we absolutely need heating. There's, there's no, no, um, no alternatives on it. Or they, they might, might consider, well, we could use a little bit less. And that, that uh, results in, in extremely lower uh, gas consumption. But it does sound funny or, or weird that I'm, I'm burning gas to make CO2, something we're all trying to fight to have less of for my plants in the greenhouse to eat. I mean, you can, you can imagine for, for non-greenhouse people that it does sound a bit weird. If we would only use it for generating co2 i would totally agree what, what we what we do use is we we work the other way around so we say how much co2 do we need um and and in what period um and then we burn the gas um with that with that burning process we create heat which we store in a heat storage tank uh, and that heat storage tank um, uh, we can use the heat at at the moment we need it for instance so in the in the greenhouse we, all the greenhouses that we build right now, they have these heat storage tanks. Um, we, in, during the day when the plant is extremely active, they use a lot of CO2. So we start heating um, or burning the gas. We store that heat in the heat storage tank. And when the plant is asleep in the night, uh, but still needs um, like a nice temperature, we use the heating which we, which we have stored in the heat storage tank. So it's not that we are purely burning the gas uh, for um, uh, the, for the for the purpose of CO two dosing, it's a dual use, use basically. Yes, it? absolutely, absolutely. And and would it be because I've heard and I'm following that industry just a bit like the carbon capture industry that's trying to drastically lower the price of of capturing CO two from the air and making it in making it available for industries like maybe the greenhouse industry, of course, the bottling industry that needs it for your Coca-Cola bottle. Would it be something, but then you don't have the heat. Would it be something in the future that you could be as an industry clients of this new emerging industry that hopefully for a very low price will be storing, will be liquefying CO2 so you can use it? Is that something you're, you're dreaming of? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because the, um, it, 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 it results directly in higher yields. So the plants um, immediately transform CO2 into, um, uh, into tomatoes or cucumbers. So we, we would absolutely be buying um, uh, CO2. 
um, as a result, like the, the, the beauty of a greenhouse is that it's a direct user of uh, heating and direct user of CO2. So you could, you could connect those greenhouses to, for instance, um, uh, uh, energy plants or any, any industry which has a waste heat. Uh, the disadvantage today is that if you have waste heat only, you still have a lack of CO2. Uh, you could supply that if you could take those two things apart. That would be fantastic. At the moment, there's no CO2 for a good price for you yeah. guys. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, there, are, there, uh, there is. So, so it's it's a matter of math. So, so sometimes uh, we we uh, uh, we are interested in buying it. You you see that happening in the Netherlands where the industry is more developed. So distribution of liquid CO2 is better. Um, that's that's a bit of a problem in, in countries like Georgia and uh, uh, Ukraine and Kazakhstan, where there's the industry is not that developed yet to supply us uh, liquid CO2 at a, at a reasonable price. Otherwise, we would definitely consider not not using any any gas. Very very interesting. And when you look, like, let's tackle another big one. Uh, people that say everything should be grown in soil. W- what's your normal reply to to that? So we would need a drastic reduction of consumption of, of, of vegetables I mean the, um, uh, the we, we let me let me take a, an example in Georgia we took over a greenhouse um, which was underperforming and it was producing in the soil in a greenhouse so um, we took over and we started uh, first thing we did was uh, taking samples of the soil and it was uh, absolutely exhausted um, after three years already um, we could see the results as well in terms of yields First year was more or less reasonable, and then uh, the yields were, went down by, by 20, 20 to 30 percent per year, uh, and and the soil was completely exhausted. So um, I do understand like like um, it, it has a bit of an industry feel on a natural product uh, with with uh, growing growing soilless. So I, I do understand that people have question marks about it. Uh, the fact so how how we use it is that. We are growing soilless, means that we, we're using substrate, um, and that allows us to dose exactly the amount of uh, water and fertilizers that the plant needs. Nothing more, nothing less. So if you, if you look at, at things like water consumption, for instance, our water consumption in uh, a soilless environment is 10 times less than an open field production. And, and that's, that's getting extremely important in, in countries like Kazakhstan, where, where there's a lack of, of water at the moment. Um, in terms of fertilizers, uh, we add the fertilizers through the water, so, um, and we have a drain system. So whatever the plant is not absorbing, uh, we collect it in the drains. It's coming back in a drain pit, which is cleaned with, uh, with UV again. And then we reuse those same fertilizers. So we reduce... 30% compared to a non-drained system. Uh, and if you would compare that with, a, with an open field production, that, that's even, even more. So um, in, those, in those terms, we're um, much more sustainable than open field uh, uh, production. So my answer would be like, it's, 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 it's more of a question like, how many people do we think we can feed? on this planet and i think we all understand that there are more people coming so we should be finding ways on reducing the inputs maximizing the outputs so that we have a maximum transformation from input to to food yeah i think it all all depends on the context and you should depend your tomatoes compared to something that apparently is flown in or trucked in from five thousand kilometers away and and all those 
kilometers also mean inputs in the sense of diesel for the truck, diesel for for free for um, for cooling it, etc., etc., etc. And and in terms of because I, I mentioned that at the beginning, in terms of jobs, and then we look at a concrete example on how do you finance it. But what what is the because they're super high tech, meaning probably less people and mostly automated. How many people are working in an average one hectare or half a hectare high tech greenhouse with you? So in, uh, rough numbers are 10 to 15 uh, persons per hectare. So we're in a normal scale greenhouse. So we have two small ones, uh, one, in, one in Georgia, which is uh, two and a half hectares. And we have around uh, 60 persons working there. It's a little bit more because you need your, uh, all, your, all your overhead stuff, like, like sales, administration, distribution. We do our distribution uh, ourselves, so we supply directly to those, uh, to those supermarkets. Uh, but but uh, the one we're building now in Kazakhstan, it starts with 5 hectares and, and it's growing to 20. Uh, that will be, um, well, starting point roughly 70 to 80 in the, in the beginning and then we'll end up somewhere around 200 to 250 uh, uh, people working there. And that's year-round because you're not seasonal which is a huge thing in agriculture yeah absolutely and we 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 aim to keep our staff as as much as possible so in georgia we have the same staff uh, since the beginning um uh, because in the end the yields are determined by by uh, the know-how of your staff not only the grower of course so we want to we want to make sure that everyone who works with us stays with us so we pay very decent salaries uh, we we try to create like um, very transparent um, uh, culture and 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 um, uh, conditions, so that people absolutely know that they are safe working with us and they have a long-term vision on, on on working with us. And as a result, we see also that people are starting to spend, which is very nice to see. Like uh, on the first year, they 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 simply work for a salary, and in the second and third year, they they start feeling security from the company and um, and also start developing their. Uh, uh, spendings uh, uh, back home in the families. You you have to like uh, try to imagine an environment where where the unemployment uh, in, um, unemployment is roughly thirty to forty percent. Where in, that's in the countries that we work in, and especially in the countryside. So the difference we can make for for those who working with us is is huge. Yeah, and and, and let's not forget you need customers to be able to buy your produce at the end. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Because, I mean, it would be great if you automate. No, not wouldn't be, but it it could be like a. An entrepreneur's dream to automate everything, but at the end, if nobody can buy your tomatoes, you're, who are you producing for? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 and, and in fact, it, um, there are too many inputs in the in the greenhouse to fully automate it. So there's um, it's in, it's a living product. Uh, it needs it needs a time. It's a hybrid, yeah. And in terms of of in this case Kazakhstan, if that's a great example, can you, can you dive a bit deeper into some of the numbers if you want to share them, just for people to have a. An, an idea of, of how asset heavy and capital heavy these these type of investments are and what comes out of it and how you're structuring it now because you're you're thinking about a fund you're thinking about different vehicles to to speed up basically because you can obviously not finance it all yourself yeah so it's an uh, absolutely an um, uh, an industry which requires a lot of capital so the the setup itself in uh, Kazakhstan is that we start with um, all the infrastructure works and the headhouse and the uh, overhead buildings for 20 hectares plus a first five hectare of um, uh, operation. Um, that investment we're doing right now, this this year, that's uh, 80 million euros. 
uh, that includes the, the cogens, that includes the, uh, uh, all the overhead works and the five-hector uh, operation. Uh, this particular one we funded, uh, like we, we are co-funded by an agricultural fund, uh, which is the, um, uh, the Silk Road Agricultural Growth Fund, um, a private equity fund uh, under international um, uh, management. And we invested ourselves along with them. Um, we, uh, we had 11, sorry, $12 million in, uh, uh, in equity and the remaining uh, in local debt. Um, that allows us, of course, this first phase to be um, uh, up and running, but as well the, the second five hectares. So compared to the first five hectares, uh, we expected a budget of 80 million euros. Uh, and the second one uh, should be done for another let's say 12, so we end up at 30 million for the first 10 hectares uh, operation. That's high, um, but that's, that's high because of the, um, the large part of uh, uh, which is, is coming from the, from the cogens. So normally you would look at roughly, like the rough numbers, 200 euros per square meter, so 2 million per, per hectare investment. And you're about 50% up, but also because you're already building most of it for 20 hectares, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and and and, and that cogen part. So uh, our our returns are also higher. Uh, we we generate we generate our electricity ourselves. Uh, so your fixed costs are higher, but your input costs are a lot lower. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So the 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 cogens itself have a have a return of five years. Normally, we look at the greenhouses as well based on a based on a two million euro investment per year. You might expect a, a one million euro revenue per year. And uh, roughly, um, let's say, 300 to 400,000 uh, EBITDA per per year. Uh, so let's say, um, if if for as long as capex uh, uh, divided by EBITDA is uh, less than less than six or seven, then we're we're absolutely fine. And and um, in this case, you finance it. You said you mentioned local debt. That's a local bank, or or how did that work? And you mentioned equity, which came from from this fund. Is that is that a normal setup for for you guys? Um, uh, yes, so it, it, it works. So what we see in um, uh, now what's happening is that there's quite an interest in investing in uh, agriculture. So we are looking for those kind of funds or investors that, that, would, uh, that are interested in uh, fixed asset investments uh, in agricultural uh, in, and, and which has a, has a decent return. We come in as an operator and we, we invest along. So we, we show our commitment, uh, we run the, uh, well, we tender the uh, construction, uh, we build it and we operate it. So that's, that's our ideal structure that could be through a fund. So where we, where we collectively um, create a fund, uh, which is um, where we uh, as an operator are also part of it. Uh, and we start building and operating uh, greenhouses in, uh, in emerging markets. Now we're focused on, uh, on this part of the world, um, Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, but we are interested absolutely in, uh, in the Middle East, which is a heavy, a heavy importer of vegetables, and in Asia, uh, to see if we can uh, do a, a similar uh, setup as we've done in, uh, in Eastern Europe. Yeah, I so saw that I think Emirates just ordered a gigantic indoor farming operation with one of the startups that, uh, from, from the US. Yeah. To supply their, their airplanes, I think. Or, I mean, the, the people in their airplanes, at least. Yeah, yeah, that's that's on salad. So that's that's pretty interesting to see, indeed. 
It's extremely interesting. And so that, that fund would be just to, to sketch a bit. Are you planning that for, for next year? Are you planning that for this year? Or what would be more or less the size and, and what, what, would be, uh, what, what would be the fund investing in? Is it debt? Is it equity? So the, um, uh, currently we're focused on, on uh, closing the um, like financial structure on um, uh, Central Eastern Europe. So that would be in itself an, uh, a fund focused on, on this part of the, of the region. That's, that's uh, already funded and, and will be finalized this year. And then we're, we're uh, aiming to set up a new structure um, coming year for, for different regions. Um, that will be a fund not on, on debt, uh, but, but, but owning the assets as well. So ideally, um, uh, I would see a, a, a setup where we um, uh, can raise a fund up to um, 100 million, which would require us to build 50 hectares in three or four locations. So uh, ideally, you would have four uh, regions uh, with, a, with a skill uh, to grow up to um, uh, 15 to 20 hectares. That's the ideal size that one management team can, uh, can run. So it requires one grower, a set of uh, uh, junior agronomists, uh, one sales team, one distribution team, and then and you have your ideal setup. So if we would like to build such um, an operation for 50 hectares in, uh, in Asia and Middle East, it would require roughly uh, 100 million. And that, that could be a combination of equity and debt. But the fund that we're setting up, that would be purely on, uh, on equity. And, and what do you see in terms of interest from investors? You see a strong interest in, in agriculture, but I can also imagine maybe these countries are, are not the first ones on the list and, and high-tech, mostly sustainable greenhouses aren't either. And what do you see from, from investors when you, when you pitch this and when you share this? Well, actually, I, I do see a, a quite a big interest in um, uh, uh, in greenhouses, um, especially, well, in, in, in US and Canada, there are... Uh, larger greenhouses. Some of them now are set up for um, uh, producing um, cannabis uh, for a, a medical use, uh, and they're they're absolutely large scale, even listed at um, at um, stock exchange in Canada. So I see more professional, industrialized uh, investors, uh, large scale investors, interested in, in in greenhouses, but I do see a lack of uh, operators connected to it. So the suppliers are there. For the greenhouses, but there's there's a lack of uh, professional operators who can run it. So I'm 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 well I, I'm pretty optimistic in in raising um, uh, raising equity for for those funds. Uh, we have several funds who are working with us right now who who, who also have a mandate uh, wider than Eastern Europe only. Uh, Eastern Europe in itself was quite a challenge, especially during those, I mean, uh, during the last five years where we have been working in Eastern Europe during uh, very turbulent times of devaluation of 50% uh, of a crisis between Russia and Ukraine. Of course, the, um, the sanctions on Russia. So, I mean, the, the last five, five years have, have been rough, but still we managed to raise quite, uh, uh, quite a substantial amount of, uh, of equity and we, we are showing good returns. And I want to be conscious of your time, so I want to close up with two questions, actually. One, imagine there's a, there's a room full of smart impact investors and investors listening to this who are, who are interested to get into regeneration in general, so not just soil, but also definitely local communities and, of course, fresh produce. What would be your, without giving investment advice, what would be your advice to, to start and look at first? Where would you advise them to learn and learn more about, about this sector and how to get involved? 
Yeah, so uh, the most sexy stories are about uh, high-tech or new um, uh, high-tech developments such as vertical farming. Um, and, and, they, and those attract uh, a lot, uh, like a huge amount of uh, capital right now. Um, I would, my advice would be to um, try try to avoid stories on marketing and um, uh, and uh, uh, like all kind of um, uh, how to say sexy stories on on the industry. In the end, it's food that needs to be produced on reasonable terms at a reasonable price for a consumer. Uh, and on vertical farms, as a, as an example today, I mean, I'm I'm very interested in. I see the industry as as, as interesting, and I see the technology as as promising. But today, uh, capex per kilogram uh, plus opex per kilogram can can cannot even be close to what we can do in uh, in in high tech greenhouses ourselves. So um, it doesn't add up in the end, and it's a niche product for a niche market, which is in itself interesting, but uh, you can't scale it. So um, my advice would be just to always uh, make sure that you, that you keep your numbers right and compare it with the industry standards to make sure that uh, you have a competitive advantage in the longer run. It, uh, I, I, I don't think uh, a business case could survive on marketing only and saying that vertical farming is the solution uh, so consumers in the end are willing to pay three times more on the product. Uh, um, in the end, consumers are willing to pay a premium, a premium on a good high quality product, but not three times more. So um, I see the investors uh, in the agriculture, like the professional ones, uh, they are not distracted by, by any stories, but they, they keep the numbers straight. So that would be uh, uh, absolutely uh, my advice. The other one is agriculture comes in, um, um, well, it has its seasonality on pricing and it has a large influence on uh, uh, year by year on open field production and, uh, and the competition with open field. So. Uh, you have to have quite good nerves and not getting nervous if one year it's uh, it's less good than the other year uh, in terms of pricing. So um, it, it, it is a long-term investment that you're making and, and you should be ready to uh, overcome bad years of pricing or bad years of, uh, of yields, uh, which you can't always influence. No, I think that's extremely good advice. And to end, if you could... From the sustainability point of view, like wave your magic wand and, and change one thing in the greenhouse industry. Maybe it would be take twenty or thirty years. What would you change? Would it be the source of fertilizer? Would it be even better a predator insects that you're using? Maybe the, the CO two part. What would be the highest point on your list that you would love to to change to make your greenhouses even more sustainable? I guess it's in uh, energy. Uh, so energy would be the combination of electricity and, and heating. Uh, and I, I, I do see like huge opportunities in the tropics where there's a, there is a, a high amount of uh, sunlight, um, but the temperatures are not correct, so you need to cool it down. Now, for obvious reasons, you would think about um, uh, using solar energy uh, in, uh, in such um, um, locations to... Uh, uh, well, to supply your equipments with energy to cool down. Now that doesn't that doesn't always uh, work because that you need the same sun for producing your goods as well. Uh, so you need the same sun for the plants as well. If you can somehow develop a greenhouse which has uh, glass on top which can generate electricity plus still uh, leaves enough sunlight for the plants, then then that would be absolutely a game. And maybe even shade it in a way that it 
they don't burn. Yeah, they don't let, exactly. let through too much, exactly. so you need to cool less, and so it becomes an interesting. Yeah, uh, yeah. You have a lot of uh, so basically you have a lot of surface on the greenhouse and the and the and the buildings around it enough to equip um, uh, solar panels, and I think that's that's an, uh, a very promising combination: greenhouses and solar uh, solar panels to really harvest this the maximum amount of solar solar yep. energy you can get for both electricity and your your solar and your plants solar plants on your plants basically wow thank thank you Dirk, so much for for your time and i'll definitely be checking in in uh, in your developments and, and have a great day thanks good you just listened to an interview with Dirk Aleven of food ventures i hope you learned something about vegetable greenhouse production and the business case behind it Thank you for making the time to listen to this podcast and making it all the way till the end. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you found the Investing in Regenerative Agriculture and Food podcast valuable, there are a few simple ways you can use to support it. Number one, rate and review the podcast on your podcast app. That's the best way for other listeners to find the podcast and it only takes a few seconds. Number two, share this podcast on social media or email it to your friends and colleagues. Number three, If this podcast has been of value to you, and if you have the means, please join my Patreon community to help grow this platform and allow me to take it further. You can find all the details on patreon.com slash regenerative agriculture or in the description below. Thank you so much and see you at the next podcast.